Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Five days to go before New Hampshire. Donald Trump is test driving Nikki Haley's electability argument. Why Trump says he is the only one who can beat Joe Biden in November. And new overnight, the U.S. launching new airstrikes and Iran-backed militants in Yemen and two neighboring countries trade strikes as fears grow of a wider war. And a border deal could be dead on arrival on Capitol Hill. What House Speaker, what the House Speaker told CNN just hours after a critical meeting at the White House. CNN This Morning starts right now. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. We got five days to go from what could be a decisive moment in the Republican presidential race. Donald Trump is focusing his attacks on Nikki Haley as he seeks to deliver a knockout blow in the New Hampshire primary. Trump is now co-opting Haley's electability message. Listen. If she wins, Biden wins. And I'm telling you that a vote for Nikki Haley this Tuesday is a vote for Joe Biden and a Democrat Congress this November, because that's what's going to happen. And the clock, of course, is ticking. Anxious Republicans who are still opposed to Trump urging Haley to take him on more aggressively. Last night at a rally, Haley took a swipe at Trump's age. The majority of Americans have said they don't want their options to be two 80-year-olds for president. We've got to move past that. The Granite State quickly shifting into a two-candidate battle. Ron DeSantis appearing to be seating the state almost entirely, pulling out staff and resources, sending them to South Carolina instead for next month's primary. As his campaign right now appears to be just scrambling to survive. His super PAC began layoffs after Trump's blowout victory in Iowa, and Trump is now openly predicting DeSantis won't be around much longer. What the hell happened to Ron? Does anybody know what happened to I think I happened to Ron. I think he's going to be gone. I think all of those applause. That was funny. But I think he's I think you can probably save him for about a week or so because I think he's going to be gone. We'll see. Omar Jimenez live for us in Manchester, New Hampshire this morning. Good morning, Omar. Haley is really the only one campaigning there today, right? Yeah, that's really what we're uh, looking for today. Haley has an event a little bit later this morning. The DeSantis campaign, despite not being here, says or claims that they are in it for the long haul and hoping to continue focusing winning states down the road. But bottom line, they are not going to be here between now and Election Day. And it's something Nikki Haley is hoping to take advantage of. Meanwhile, former President Trump is also in full campaign mode, represented by the two places we've seen him most. Donald Trump juggling the courtroom and the campaign. But I'm thrilled to be back in the great state of New Hampshire. The former president rallied voters in New Hampshire last night after he willingly spent most of the day in a New York courtroom, hearing E. Jean Carroll testify against him in her civil defamation trial. And that's a nasty man. He's a nasty judge. He's a Trump-hating guy. Trump clashed with Judge Lewis Kaplan, who threatened to throw him out of the trial for speaking within earshot of the jury. I understand you are probably very eager for me to do that, the judge told Trump. Trump responding, 
I would love it. This is a person I have no idea until this happened, obviously. I have no idea who she was, and nor could I care less. It's a rigged deal. It's a made-up, fabricated story. Carol is seeking more than $10 million in damages after a judge found Trump liable for his 2019 defamatory statements about Carol's sexual assault allegations. Chaos follows him. And we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. Back in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley is focusing her campaign squarely on Donald Trump, hitting back after a number of policy and personal attacks by Trump, including using her birth name, Nimrata, in a post widely seen as a racist dog whistle. Now, I know Trump threw a, a temper tantrum about me last night. Trump hit Haley for the support she's drawn from outside the Republican Party in the state. Nikki Haley is counting on Democrats. The radical left Democrats are supporting Nikki Haley because they know she's much easier to beat than Trump. Meanwhile, with no clear path in New Hampshire and two debates now canceled, Governor Ron DeSantis appears to be shifting his focus to South Carolina, his super PAC beginning layoffs and setting the stage for a likely final stand in Haley's home state. I want to pick up delegates. Everyone that goes out and votes for me is going to help me get delegates, and that's what we want to do. And we were at a town hall of DeSantis's yesterday and where he was still asking for folks in New Hampshire for their vote. And he did acknowledge when he was asked about it that he probably will be back in the state on Sunday. But we will see. In the, mean, in the meantime, Nikki Haley essentially got her two-person race confirmation, uh, at least here in New Hampshire. The question is, can she capitalize on it? And if she does, it would pose the most serious challenge we have seen yet to the former president. All right. Omar Jimenez, up early. Thanks. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss former Republican strategist and pollster Lee Carter, former Tim Scott, presidential campaign senior advisor Matt Gorman, and CNN political analyst and historian Leah Wright-Rigour. Uh, Leah, I, I want to start with you because the, the kind of whole push right now is can you get the independence, can you get New Hampshire's very different electorate from Iowa to give you a shot, right, to keep this race going beyond next Tuesday? Haley made the point, basically, if you're not in it now, don't complain. Listen. But the only way we're going to win is if we elect a new conservative generational leader and put the negativity and the baggage behind and focus on the solutions of the future. Don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't play in this primary on Tuesday. Do you think that message, I've heard from some Republicans who are saying she has to go harder at Trump right now. Like, this is it. Light everything on fire, basically. That message, is that effective for this electorate? It's effective, but this is also the moment for her to take risks and for her to put it all in the basket, because this is not the time to play it safe. It's not the time to say, you know what, I'm going to play nice with the former president of the United States, because if the former president of the United States wins this, which it looks like he will, it's over, right? It's over for her campaign. It's not likely that she will win the other, uh, any of the other uh, primary contests. Um, and it also means, right, it, it puts forward a narrative 
narrative about her campaign and her coming in second. She already came in third in the Iowa caucuses. And I think part of what she has to do is really hit home uh, two different things. One, this idea of the future of the Republican Party. What do we want the Republican Party to look like? What do we want it to stand for? But then also the policy aspect of the party, which it turns out Republican voters do care about. Republican voters in New Hampshire really do care about. And so she started to do some of that. We saw her critique uh, Trump on things like Social Security, on things like uh, the gas credit, on his age, on Biden's age. But, you know, for right now, while she's painted a vision that I think is about stability in the midst of chaos, in the midst of Trump's chaos, it's not enough. She has to do so much more, including taking these very large risks and taking it directly to Trump if she wants to make a splash and, and continue on in this contest. Matt, you've helped run a presidential campaign mm -hmm. in Scott. Will Nikki Haley do that? The knock on her has been, what does she really think? Yeah. She's trying to have it all ways with all people. To Leah's point, isn't this the moment when you have to say what you really think, put it all on the table, be incredibly clear? I think you also have to be strategic. Trump is still the most popular so figure that's in a our no. party. Well, it's, like, you're still, you're <laughs> still, you're still, you're still running to win, right? So Trump is the most a popular figure in our party. If you go full kind of you know, anti, as if you're running from him on the left. Isn't that how you get the undeclares in New Hampshire? That's also how you lose Republicans. Yeah. It's still a Republican primary. And also, too, a lot, if she happens to do well, wins or comes in very close, South Carolina looks a lot more like Iowa in terms of demographics and beyond. You can't go full scorched earth because if you do win, and she can win the way she's going right now, it's still a toss-up. You still have a long way to go. And I think I think it's really a bad strategy to be reactive. If all you're doing right now is lighting Trump on fire, that means that's all you're trying to do. And right now, when you talk to voters, voters say, you know, 82 percent of Iowans who voted for Donald Trump said he cares about people like me. Mm -hmm. There's a huge number of people who say Trump is a fighter for people like me. When they talk about Nikki Haley, what do they say? They say she's she's able to be. Donald Trump, they say that she's the next generation of leadership. It's about her, not us. And that's a big distinction. What Nikki Haley needs to be doing right now is what is it going to look like for me if Nikki Haley is president? And no one can answer that except saying that she's younger and has a better chance in the polls. That's not personal. That's not emotional. That's not visceral. And she's missing a big moment there, I think, to really make her case. My biggest question, Matt, for you at this point, beyond the, like, Trump co-opting the electability thing is the hilarity of that when he lost the House, the yep. Senate, and the White House over the course of his four years uh, shouldn't be lost on anybody at this point in time. But to the point both you and Lee are making, based on what you saw when you were in the campaign, is there any path for anyone else right now? One of the biggest hurdles we suddenly had on the campaign trail was when Trump started winning general election head-to-head -head matchups against Joe Biden. Because yeah. Which we'll he didn't that, do. Yeah. Which he didn't do for time. a long time, and he didn't do for much of the campaign, I would tell, I'd say until the fall. It took away the best argument for Tim, Nikki, and Ron, who we would, we would see people and talk to people, I like Trump, I just don't think he can win again. Suddenly, poll after poll, it gives them license. You know, maybe he can, and they can go with their gut or what they really want to see. It, it, had that much it took really? away our best argument, the electability argument. If he's losing by five or ten points consistently to Joe Biden, I swear this is a different primary campaign because they have to factor in their head versus who's going to win versus their heart. They may love Trump, but he probably can't win. That's not the case anymore. Mm. Thank you. Stick around. So you can also watch Nikki Haley. She's going to be in a CNN town hall tonight, moderated by our very own Jake Tapper. That is 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Well, Donald Trump says four words that really 
quite literally reveal the campaign game he's playing right now in court. A judge rebukes him for interrupting Eugene Carroll and threatens to go even further. Also new overnight, Pakistan strikes Iran in response to Iran's deadly attacks yesterday. Why this will likely inflame the already tenuous situation in the Middle East. Donald Trump lashing out in court, loudly calling the defamation lawsuit against him a, quote, witch hunt. Sounds familiar. And while his accuser was testifying, he said audibly in open court, it really is a con job. Now, we've heard that language from him before a lot. But after that, he said the quiet part out loud. The judge in the case warned Trump he could be kicked out of court if the behavior continued, saying, quote, I understand you're very eager for me to do that. And then Trump said four very telling words, quote, I would love it. Why would he love it? He has made no secret about why. Votes and money. He has already said that he believes the 91 criminal counts that he is facing are helping him on the campaign trail. Here's a reminder. If I didn't get indicted all these times and if they didn't unfairly go after, I would have won. But it would have been much closer, I tell you. And think about this. His two biggest fundraising days so far have been the first time he was indicted and when that mugshot was released after he was booked in Georgia. Bottom line, playing the victim works for the former president on the campaign trail, and he has been telling us that all along. This is a political witch hunt, the likes of which nobody's ever seen before. And I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong. This is a witch hunt, and it's a very corrupt trial. It's uh, political warfare, as you would call it, or political lawfare. Lee Carter and Leah Wright-Rigura are back with us now, along with CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, the thing I was thinking throughout the course of the day yesterday is if a normal person was sitting in that district courtroom doing what Trump was doing, what would have happened? Would have been thrown out. Uh, judge Kaplan is a no-nonsense judge. He is a zero-nonsense judge uh, in that federal courthouse. And to be muttering under your breath continually, even after warned by the judge, in a way that the jury can hear... Uh, would get you an escort out of the courtroom. I think Judge Kaplan's being careful here. He controls his courtroom. I think if Donald Trump continues to push, that may well happen. But you all identified the, the four most important words. I would love that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why he's there. Nothing could serve his purposes better. And I want to be clear. There's some legal strategy happening here. There's no question, though, this is political. I mean, just keep in mind, he didn't even go to the first trial, which was really, in a way, higher stakes. Now, the results of the first trial that he's liable, they carry over to this trial. So it's interesting to see the two of them, Judge Kaplan and Donald Trump, two alphas, I would say, in their own environments go at it. Ultimately, Judge Kaplan's going to prevail, but ultimately that may play to Donald Trump's advantage. Leah, I would love it. Is that uh, a sign of what is to come? He's got a couple of trials ahead. Oh, it's absolutely a sign of what's to come. It's a sign of what we can all look forward to over the next couple of months as all of these kind of this these multitude of trials come forward. Donald Trump has already told us that he will be attending all of these trials. In addition to the trials he does not have to attend, he doesn't have to be present for, as he doesn't as he didn't have to be present for several of the trials that we've had over the last uh, couple mm -hmm. of weeks. Um, but it is a political strategy that is really, really smart for him right now. It has helped raise his profile. It has moved him from kind of being a, a ghost in a lot of ways in the kind of uh, in the political apparatus and the institution of the Republican Party, someone whose career was over, to now he is a victim. He is someone who needs to be protected. He is someone who needs to be supported. He's managed, as you mentioned, to raise an incredible amount of money off of this. And I think the more that we see of this, it's just 
just really strengthens uh, his case to the Republican Party at large. Um, and, and I think it's one of the things that's, that's really important here is that it's not just, and it's the way that he's framing this is that these things are not just a, a legal and political attack on Donald Trump, they're a legal and political attack on the world of Donald Trump and Trump supporters. And so that is part of how really I think uh, he has made this into kind of a political project that has really resonated with a, a large swath of the Republican base. We've talked at length about how effective it's been. You mm -hmm. have pages <laughs> of notes that explain that in great detail and in a very uh, helpful manner. The question that I keep coming back to is once this nomination is wrapped up, if that in fact becomes the case, how are non-Republicans viewing things like this? How are non-Republicans viewing these antics, these strategies, the way he's putting this stuff to the forefront? Well, I think there's the, the, the question of how Democrats are viewing it and how independents are viewing it. And Democrats are viewing it really, really negatively. So it's sure. going to, it's, it's in many ways, it's energizing people to go out and vote for Joe Biden that otherwise wouldn't. But then there's this, this middle ground of folks and people who are independents who really, there's very few true independents, most align one way or the other, but they refuse the label, um, who say, I might hate the way that he acts, except that I like some of his policies. Or they believe the system is corrupt. I mean, more than 70% of Americans right now believe that there's a two-tier system of justice. One of the things that he talks about, they believe that the system is unfair, that it's rigged to treat the elite differently than the rest of everybody else. And so this idea that Donald Trump can come in and blow up that model, that he's willing to fight back, that he's not afraid of all of the usual things is appealing to a very, very large group of people. And that's why you're seeing the states that matter most, those seven states that matter most, poll after poll is saying that Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden. And it's, it's hard to understand for people who look at this and think he's nuts. But for those who really like this message, this idea of someone who's going to go fight for them, fight. He talks about this isn't just about him. This is about us. They're coming after all of us. If they can do this to me, they can do it to all of us. And it's very effective. For I, a I think there's people. a group in the middle as well, to Lee's point, that looks at this and just says, Okay, when he says it's a pile on, it starts to feel like that yep. at a certain point. I'm not saying any of these cases individually are unjustified, but when you look at someone who, in the course of 18 months or so, has been charged with four criminal indictments, at least three major civil suits, including E. Jean Carroll now twice, dozens of these 14th Amendment challenges, which I think are all about to crash and burn and be rejected by the Supreme Court, you can understand how somebody, first of all, you can understand how people can't keep it straight. I mean, we usually use that magic wall to put it visually because it's yeah. so much. Um, but it does play into his head. It's almost like a jujitsu move by Donald Trump. You use the other person's momentum against them to say this is a pile on. And you're saying this is a former federal prosecutor who knows what it takes to go after someone. And you're saying this many cases of this magnitude in this period of time. Yeah. And again, you can look at any of these cases and I can absolutely defend the criminal charges. I can absolutely defend the civil cases. I don't think it's necessarily anyone's fault, but I think when you take them all, the mass of them, I do think it plays into the point that, that Lee and Leah have been making. Yeah. It's a, it, and it's a very effective point. I would say that maybe we could package something where like Ellie and the magic wall is available to everyone <laughs> in the their time. home all at the all time. times to explain, because that's how I figure it out. Can we, can we trace this? Yeah, I mean, there's a smaller version, a digital version we can utilize. Thank you guys Thank you. very much. So President Biden trying to broker a deal on the border and also funding for Ukraine and Israel. House Speaker Mike Johnson telling Caitlin Collins on CNN what could happen to any deal that reaches the chamber. And the U.S. strikes back after Iran-backed militants hit another U.S. flagship in the Red Sea. What else the U.S. is doing to stop those attacks. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. It is 26 past the hour. That is Washington, D.C., both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue. You're looking at those live pictures. House Speaker Mike Johnson is currently in that city, casting very serious doubt on whether Congress can pass a bipartisan immigration deal. It comes after top congressional leaders met with President Biden at the White House on Wednesday. Now, Republicans are blocking Biden's Ukraine aid request over strict border policies that they passed in the House last year. Speaking to CNN last night, Johnson would not commit to bringing a deal to the House floor without those policies, even if it passes the U.S. Senate. If the best we can get does not solve the problem and not stem the flow, then it will not be acceptable on the House side. And I have said that very clearly from day one. We have to solve the problem. This is not about getting political points for one side or the other. It's about solving the problem that is now a crisis for every community. Every state is a border state now. Arletai joins us at the White House with more. This is after he left that meeting with the president. Some Democrats projected optimism after the meeting. Not as much from Speaker Johnson unless they kind of get everything they want, it sounds like. Yeah, and you know, White House officials say President Biden really went into this meeting trying to inject a new sense of urgency in getting this aid to Ukraine passed. But he's running up against the political reality that this is complicated uh, amid Republicans' push for border policy changes. Now, the White House and President Biden really used this roughly 80-minute meeting to try to lay out the stakes uh, for Ukraine as this uh, aid is currently uh, faltering over in Congress. Uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and uh, Avril Haines, the uh, director of national intelligence, really laid out point by point uh, what the real world impacts would be to Ukraine on the battlefield, even pointing to classified information as they made their case. The White House said that the president in his meeting discussed, quote, the strategic consequences of inaction for Ukraine, the United States and the world. He was clear Congress's continued failure to act endangers the United States national security, the NATO alliance and the rest of the free world. The White House also said that President Biden did acknowledge that he believes that there needs to be action taken now to address to address some of the issues on the U.S. southern border. And that is where these complicated uh, these uh, negotiations and talks have really been stuck. The approach for how to address 
border policy is currently at odds up on Capitol Hill. You have those Senate negotiators, Republicans and Democrats, who have been working to try to reach some type of agreement for weeks now. The White House has made concessions in these talks. Uh, but House Speaker Mike Johnson said that the, what is being proposed at this moment is simply dead, of, dead on arrival in the House. If the bill looks like some of the things that have been rumored, of course it's dead in the House because it wouldn't solve the problem. You can't just do pieces of this and leave, for example, parole untouched, leave the current broken parole process untouched because it's a giant loophole that would allow all these people to continue to come in. And so this really speaks to the precarious nature of these talks right now. Even as you had congressional leaders coming out of that meeting with the president saying that it was productive and people expecting, expressing optimism, it's still unclear how the House would proceed as there are some hardliners who are simply pushing for much uh, tougher border policy changes in order to pass that aid to Ukraine. Yeah, it's a huge open question. It's like a Rubik's Cube trying to put this thing together. I don't know how exactly they're going to do it. All that science for us. Businesses sounding the alarm over attacks that continue on ships in the Red Sea. How this roundabout route that vessels are being forced to take could mean higher costs for you soon. And families of the Uvalde school shooting victims see a new report detailing what happened inside Robb Elementary. Why one parent walked out of the meeting with the attorney general. Well, this new overnight, the United States carrying out more airstrikes in Yemen. The fourth round of strikes aimed at stopping Iran-backed Houthi militants from attacking ships in the Red Sea. And this comes as fears grow of the Israel-Hamas war and just widening this into a much broader conflict. Now, hours before the new airstrikes, the Houthis struck a U.S.-owned and operated vessel in the Gulf of Aden for the second time in a week. U.S. Central Command says no one was injured on board and the ship was able to continue on its way. These strikes occurred on the same day U the U.S. redesignated the Houthis as a specially designated global terrorist entity. Also, in a significant development overnight, the United States not the only country striking back against Iran and its proxies. Just hours ago, Pakistan carried out a series of strikes in Iran against what it is calling terrorist hideouts. And this comes a day after Iran launched an attack in Pakistan. Our senior international correspondent, Ivan Watson, is following this. Ivan, thank you very much for being with us. There's been all this talk about, is there a regional conflict? There, there is, yeah, and this and really th adds to it. I think this is perhaps one of the most unlikely flare-ups that mm -hmm. I could have predicted, even at the beginning of this week, when Pakistan and Iran, which were kind of getting along, they were scheduled to hold joint naval exercises. Uh, but Iran carried out its own deadly missile strikes starting Monday on northern Iraq, on Syria, and then Tuesday night on Pakistan. And it stunned the ruling establishment there. Uh, they said that at least two people were killed in what the Iranians said were, were missile strikes on a militant group that they accused of, of hiding out in Pakistan and carrying out attacks on Iran in the past. So the Pakistanis, they withdrew their ambassador from Tehran. They called this a violation of Pakistani airspace. They declared Iran's ambassador to Pakistan uh, unwelcome. And uh, just a few hours ago, the Pakistani military claimed responsibility for what it described as precision strikes into Iran against a different militant group that it accuses of carrying out attacks on Pakistan in the past. The Iranian authorities say that killed at least nine people, including a number of children and women. They're demanding an answer. Again, not what you could have predicted at the beginning of the week. Both 
Both of these neighbors are Islamic republics. Neither of them have relations with Israel. And suddenly this flare up of tensions. A big question is how will Iran respond to this? Does it really want to get into a dust up with its much larger nuclear armed neighbor to the east? Yeah, that's the question. Uh, Ivan, thank you very much for all that reporting. Business leaders are increasingly sounding the alarm about how the unrest in the Middle East could impact their bottom line and possibly you, the consumer. The CEO of Maris spoke to our Richard Quest about how long disruptions in the Red Sea could actually last. Initially, we thought this was going to be a fairly short disruption. Now, I think our base case is more going towards month of disruptions, and that means a lot more cost. Richard Quest, live with us from Davos. You've had such interesting conversations there with business leaders. When I saw that you were uh, speaking to Vincent Clerk, I was really interested because what Maersk has to do if they have to go around the Cape of Good Hope, it takes two more weeks. Ultimately, that means much more expensive things for us at home, right? Yes, and the interesting reason is not just that it takes that extra 10 to 14 days to go around, but it's what they do. Because if you think about the supply chain and global supply chain, it's all now so finely tuned. So now ships are in the wrong place. They're taking longer. It costs more. And Vincent Clerk really goes through in a, in a very clear way exactly how that increased cost comes about. I think the, the, the level of threat today is really, really hard to, to assess uh, on an objective basis, and, and I completely understand that. For us, this is really about guaranteeing the safety of our crew, of our ships, and also of the cargo that our customers are trusting us with. So you're going to have to take the long way round, which is down and round. It adds about 10 to 14 days, depending on uh, the as, as I understand it. That's Please about correct. Co- correct me. But what does it add in terms of cost? So actually, the exact cost of it is something that is really unfolding and that we're trying to get our arms around. You have different levels of cost. The first one is it takes about 8,000 miles more to get from China to the UK, uh, south of the Horn. That takes these couple of weeks. That means that we have ships that suddenly have to sail full throttle. Uh, That means more emission, more fuel. It means also that they will not be, despite that, back on time in, uh, in China. That means also the containers take longer time to turn. So you, you just have costs piling on here. And the longer this is going to last, the more this is going to cost. The fascinating part of that is they literally have to put their foot on the gas so that they can get there as quickly as they can, burn more fuel, and then hoof it back to China as quickly as possible. Now, for the US, it's slightly different in a way because you've got the, you're going across the Pacific into the West Coast, which of course will increase the cost because more will have to go that way. And then you land ship by train or by truck across the United States. All in all, it's not a disaster. It's not a calamity, but it's exactly what the global economy does not need at the moment when it's trying to bring down prices and make things easier. Totally. After years of supply chain disruptions, you've got this. And everyone at home is going to start feeling it in cost. Richard, thanks very much. Princess Kate is in the hospital after having surgery. Her father-in-law, King Charles, faces a health scare, too. Why the usually private royal family decided to go public with these conditions. And one of the most influential CEOs in America talking with a warning to Democrats about demonizing the MAGA movement. I think this this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. You're going to hear a lot more candid talk from Jamie Dimon on that straight ahead. 
JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, he has thoughts. He often shares them. And this time he's warning Democrats this election cycle. Watch what you say about Donald Trump and his supporters. I wish the Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about MAGA. When people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump and they think they're voting and they're basically scapegoating them that you are like him. Uh, and but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. And if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He's kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm-hmm. He grew the economy quite well. And I don't like how he said things about Mexico. I don't like. But he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And that's why they're voting for him. And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. The Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, but, hugging onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really, like, could we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? I think this, this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. It was a really interesting moment for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because you rarely, if ever, hear CEOs of huge companies be that candid on politics. Two, because Jamie Dimon has been no defender of Donald Trump. You'll remember how he went after Trump's response to uh, Charlottesville in 2017. Our reporting has been that he has been very impressed with Nikki Haley so far. So let's talk about this and the big picture. Back with us at the table, we have Lee, Matt, and Leah. Thank you guys for being here. Matt, let me start with you on this. What's so interesting about when Jamie Dimon talks about politics is he tells you what he really, really thinks. The the point he made there is a lot of what Trump did proved, in his opinion, to be correct, even if you don't like some of the style, some of the things that are said, et cetera, and and beyond that. So my question to you is, is that a warning that Democrats should heed and the Biden administration should heed about how you talk about supporters? That's really the message he was saying. Is show respect when you talk about people who support Trump for these reasons. It's a, it's a warning politically to the Biden campaign and, and folks who support him and how they court possible independents and moderates. I think it's also a warning to the business world that you need to surround yourself with people who don't think exactly like you. You need to break out of your bubble a little bit because I think what we've seen this past year or so is too many corporations and companies walking in head first into some bad PR or bad issues because they don't go around the table and talk to anyone who might have voted for Donald Trump or have any sort of favorable opinion to him. And it can head off a lot of issues you've seen if you if you just have a different perspective. If everyone sitting around this table thinks the exact same way you do, whether it's a boardroom or anything, that's a red flag. And so you need to bring in outside perspectives. I mean, look, Jamie Dimon for president. I think it was the right message uh, for him to be delivering. I think Bill Ackman tried that. Yeah, I think he's moved on. Seriously, he did. Now he's moved on to how. He is so right. Right. When you think about the moment that Hillary Clinton lost the election in 2016, it was the moment that she called basket full of deplorables. That was game over. When you go after the supporters instead of the candidate, big problems follow. And let's not forget, Jamie Dimon is a CEO of a company where in America, probably half of his clients voted for Donald Trump. And so he can't be too critical. He's got to understand this. He's got to have a message of unity in many ways. But I think he's absolutely right. When he also, he also went on to talk about how um, we have to stop accusing supporters of being like the former president instead of listening to their underlying concerns. 
MAGA Republicans, Republicans at large, have very valid concerns. They're concerned about the direction of the country. They're also, by the way, concerned about democracy. They're concerned about inflation, immigration, the economy. They're good people, many of them. And we're defining them by the worst attributes instead of the best. And I think that uh, Jamie Dimon had a really valid point, and Democrats would be wise to listen. I think it's a good point. I think it's one that I think you, you could see reflected in a very different approach that you heard from the former president in Indianola in Iowa on Sunday. Take a listen. So we have to have fair and free elections or we don't have a country. But these caucuses are your personal chance to score the ultimate victory over all of the liars, cheaters, thugs, perverts, frauds, crooks, freaks, creeps, and other quite nice people. That's a mouthful. I, I was being sarcastic there. Like, that, like, it's the thing that I don't understand about this, and I'm not criticizing Jamie Dimon or that view of, of, of what he's saying or what you're saying about Hillary Clinton and the deplorables candidate. It's like Trump says awful things about Democrats and supporters of Joe Biden and supporters of Hillary Clinton and everything like that. Way worse than deplorables or you don't like them. And no one seems to care. Like The deep offense that is taken when Hillary Clinton says deplorables or people call Donald Trump supporters, MAGA people, is not reflected. And I, I would like to know why. We also, we also know that Joe Biden has actually been getting flack from and, and really getting hit from Democrats, diehard Democrats uh, and progressives about being too soft, I think, on, um, on Donald Trump, which is interesting because the central part of the campaign has become this idea of Donald Trump is an existential threat to democracy. What I think is interesting about Jamie Dim Dimon's comments is that given that Jamie Dimon has been so critical of the past, why the about face? Why in this moment? Why so rapidly, especially when he spent the last three months really championing Nikki Haley and saying this is somebody who is not chaotic, who is not, you know, uh, spitting people's faces and, and calling people names or calling for, you know, revenge politics as the front uh, uh, as the front um, as the front runner of the party. And I think part of what we have to look into is. What does Jamie Dimon see as the pathway forward? Is he, and I think one of the things he's identifying is that he thinks that Trump is going to be the front runner. He didn't say is, that. Right? Um, he says that this is the person that is going to be the GOP nominee. And so I think as he's thinking about, as, as, uh, as, as we're thinking about, you know, how is he framing this? We have to remember that Jamie Dimon is trying to think about an entryway into this a relationship with Trump. But can I, right, can yeah. I ask you, a question, and this is about separating the policies that he laid out there, whether it's with NATO, whether it's on immigration, economy, China, and the um, words the former president chooses to use, the way he does it. Do you see what I'm saying? Can you see a separation there? Or is it take it all or leave it all? Well, I think Jamie Dimon says we should be able to separate. Um, but right, I think that's the, what I'm asking. But the problem is, is that with somebody like Trump, and I'm not talking about his supporters, right? That's a, that's a different conversation, I think. But with somebody like Trump, there is no separation. And I think it's, it's very difficult right, to essentially make an argument that is in fact effectively whitewashing the president's kind of ideas and his policies. Like his rhetoric is directly tied to policies. And this was one of Jamie Dimon's central uh, criticisms, right? As he says, well, you know, maybe Trump is right about immigration. Well, two years ago, he's blasting the president 
for his stance on immigration and the way that he is talking about immigrants. So you can't divorce the two. And it's something that I think has to be evaluated alongside, right, how we are thinking about running this argument about an existential threat to democracy. I think it's a fascinating conversation um, that we should have. Too a lot bad more. we have commercials. <laughs> ruining everything. And also, DeSantis and those guys tried to run the policy, Trump policy, not other Trump, and can't do it. Not where can't, the party's at yeah. right now. Lee, Matt, Leah, guys, thank you as always. So today, a House committee holds a public hearing on that part of the plane on Alaska Airlines that just blew off. Next hour, the chair of the NTSB is going to join us live before she testifies on Capitol Hill. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This morning, two members of the British royal family are facing health issues. King Charles will be hospitalized next week for an enlarged prostate. His daughter-in-law, Catherine, Princess of Wales, Princess Kate, in the hospital recovering now from abdominal surgery. Her last public appearance was on Christmas Day with Prince William and their children at Sandringham. CNN's Max Foster has been following this, is always following this, joins us live from London. Max, I'm fascinated. It's so rare for a royal family to disclose personal information like this. Why, why now? Why did this happen? Well, I think in terms of Kate, uh, she was in hospital. There was a public interest knowing she was in hospital. She might have seen, been seen leaving the hospital. And of course, we would have asked questions about why her engagements were being cancelled. So I think that was out of necessity. Charles didn't necessarily have to reveal details of um, his enlarged uh, prostate. But uh, this from the palace, in common with thousands of men each year, the king has sought treatment for an enlarged prostate. His Majesty's condition is benign and will attend hospital next week for a corrective procedure. The King's public engagements will be postponed for a short period of recuperation. So he had to let people know he was meeting, he wasn't going. Uh, but a source also telling us uh, that he wanted to encourage other men uh, to have their prostates checked as well. So I think there's a spirit of more openness actually around this monarchy because in the past we wouldn't have heard any medical details at all. Yeah, that's a great point. And both of them at the same time. Do you have any update, Max, on how Princess Kate is doing, recovering? Uh, we haven't had an update which suggests things are going well. They said there wouldn't be an update until possibly she left hospital or things took a turn for the worse. Um, the papers covering this, uh, we do know that Kate's very keen to protect her kids from all of this, but it is all over the, the front of the papers. There you have it on the Telegraph, in the mirror, I'll be there for you, Kate. This is a reference to how William is also giving up his public diary to support the family. So three royals effectively out of public action here. Uh, let's pray that you're both okay. So that's the headline in one paper, because I think people have been quite alarmed, actually, about the amount of recovery time that Kate needs from this. Uh, more than three months in total, it could be. And here in the sun, royals rocked by Kate Opp, uh, really in reference to my point that three out of four of the top royals are out of action now in public. So it's really down to Queen Camilla to be the front face of the entire monarchy. So we expect to see her out and about next week because 
you know, the idea of monarchy is that they continue, they're a symbol of um, continuity and stability. Uh, but that's been rocked slightly this week because yeah. showing their frailty, you know. Yeah, well, our, our good wishes to all of them for their health. Max Foster, we appreciate the update as always. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Things are really heating up in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley is counting on Democrats to infiltrate your Republican primary. I know Trump threw a temper tantrum about me last night. She has a welcome audience among those undeclared voters. In New Hampshire, this is a two-person race. Trump unleashed, making a mockery out of a Manhattan courtroom. The judge telling him, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from the trial. Trump replied, I would love it. His goal was to amplify his own victim narrative. It's not about winning the case. This is about voters and nothing else. For the fourth time in less than a week, the U.S. has carried out strikes against the Houthi militants in Yemen. The Houthis have given no indication they will back down. These actions by the Houthis are illegal, reckless, and dangerous, and they need to stop. President Biden hoping to break a stalemate for immigration and aid to Ukraine. If the bill looks like some of the things that have been rumored, of course it's dead in the House. Any party that says do it my way or no way, we're not going to get anything done. Good Thursday morning, everyone. I'm Phil Madding with Poppy Harlow here in New York. And Donald Trump is focusing his fire right on Nikki Haley as he seeks to deliver a knockout blow in the state of New Hampshire in its primary just five days from now. Now, Trump is actually co-opting Haley's message, claiming he's the only one who can beat President Biden in November. If she wins, Biden wins. And I'm telling you that a vote for Nikki Haley this Tuesday is a vote for Joe Biden and a Democrat Congress this November, because that's what's going to happen. And the clock is clearly ticking down for Haley to stop Trump's seemingly inevitable march to the GOP nomination. Anxious Republicans opposed to Trump, they're urging Haley and her campaign to escalate her attacks, be more aggressive. Last night, Haley took a swipe at Trump's age. The majority of Americans have said they don't want their options to be two 80-year-olds for president. We've got to move past that. Well, New Hampshire looks like it is quickly shaping up to be a two-candidate battle. Ron DeSantis pulling staff and resources out of the Granite State and instead sending them to South Carolina for next month's primary. In an apparent last-ditch move to try to save his campaign, his super PAC is laying off staff, scaling back plans to compete in Nevada and Super Tuesday states. Last night during his rally, Trump predicted DeSantis won't be in this much longer. What the hell happened to Ron? Does anybody know what happened to I think I happened to Ron. I think he's going to be gone. I think all of those applause, that was funny. But I think, he's, I think you can probably save him for about a week or so because I think he's going to be gone. DeSantis is not in New Hampshire today. He's back home in Florida for the day. So is Trump, and he's there for his mother-in-law's funeral. Nikki Haley will be the only one campaigning in the Granite State today. That is where we find our Omar Jimenez in Manchester, New Hampshire. Good morning. What does this mean for the DeSantis camp? Yeah, well, for starters, the DeSantis were, well, we're not expecting to see much of DeSantis over this next week. And his campaign claims that they are in it for the long haul and that they're just focusing on later states that come after New Hampshire. But bottom line, Nikki Haley has an opportunity that they're hoping to capitalize on here. As you mentioned, she's the only one with campaign events in the state today. Uh, she's got a meet and greet starting in just a few hours. But former President Trump has also been in full campaign mode, represented by the two places we've seen him most. 
Donald Trump juggling the courtroom and the campaign. But I'm thrilled to be back in the great state of New Hampshire. The former president rallied voters in New Hampshire last night after he willingly spent most of the day in a New York courtroom, hearing E. Jean Carroll testify against him in her civil defamation trial. And that's a nasty man. He's a nasty judge. He's a Trump-hating guy. Trump clashed with Judge Lewis Kaplan, who threatened to throw him out of the trial for speaking within earshot of the jury. I understand you are probably very eager for me to do that, the judge told Trump. Trump responding, I would love it. This is a person I have no idea until this happened, obviously. I have no idea who she was, and nor could I care less. It's a rigged deal. It's a made-up, fabricated story. Carroll is seeking more than $10 million in damages after a judge found Trump liable for his 2019 defamatory statements about Carroll's sexual assault allegations. Chaos follows him. And we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. Back in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley is focusing her campaign squarely on Donald Trump, hitting back after a number of policy and personal attacks by Trump, including using her birth name, Nimrata, in a post widely seen as a racist dog whistle. Now, I know Trump threw a, a temper tantrum about me last night. Trump hit Haley for the support she's drawn from outside the Republican Party in the state. Nikki Haley is counting on Democrats. The radical left Democrats are supporting Nikki Haley because they know she's much easier to beat than Trump. Meanwhile, with no clear path in New Hampshire and two debates now canceled, Governor Ron DeSantis appears to be shifting his focus to South Carolina, his super PAC beginning layoffs and setting the stage for a likely final stand in Haley's home state. I want to pick up delegates. Everyone that goes out and votes for me is going to help me get delegates, and that's what we want to do. We were at a town hall of his yesterday, and he was still asking for votes here in New Hampshire, despite essentially leaving the rest of the week. And when he was asked about that, he said he would probably be back Sunday, to use his words. But bottom line, this is an opportunity Nikki Haley is hoping to capitalize on, and she got her essentially two-person race wish. The question is, can she, again, capitalize on the opportunity, but also pose what could be the most serious threat to the former president we have seen? Yeah, two-person race, and today with the state to herself, we'll have to see what happens. Omar, thanks. So also today, the Justice Department is set to release its findings of their independent review of the police response to the massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. That is where 19 children and two teachers were murdered in the 2022 shootings. It has left the community with so many questions as to why it took 77 minutes for authorities to act and stop the gunmen. Well, just ahead of the release, victims' families met with the U.S. Attorney General, Merrick Garland. You see pictures of him there. One father saying all they want is accountability. Accountability, you know, I mean, that's what everybody wants. That's what we all want. We want people to, to be held accountable for, for what they didn't do that day, you know. That's, I mean, that's all that's left to do. Our CNN, Shimon Prokopez, has covered this story from day one. You've spoken to the families from day one. What are they saying? What are they telling you after this meeting with the AG, Shimon? So they were really um, happy to have someone finally to sit with and to talk about what happened that day. They spent almost two hours or so with the uh, Department of Justice. It was the Attorney General, 
and then one of his deputies, Vanita Gupta, and it was, uh, they said, a tough meeting. Uh, it was emotional at times. They want accountability, the families. They feel like perhaps they're on their way here. Uh, and one of the key things uh, I'm told from family members, they were told last night, was that the Department of Justice stressed the fact that one of the problems on the day of the shooting was that there was just no command structure. Structure. No one was essentially in charge giving orders. Um, one of the father, one of the parents uh, of one of the kids who survived spoke uh, after the meeting. Here's what he said. I'm hopeful that uh, you see all the people here, that this will exponentiate by thousand percent, and that not only the people in the United States, but around the world will finally see the abysmal failure that law enforcement had. The other thing here, Phil and Poppy, is that it is taking so long for these families to get these answers and how the fact that they've been victimized in so many different ways by state officials, by local officials, that is something that the Department of Justice stressed to them that they're trying to put an end to, that they're trying to deal with, and hopefully by meeting with them and today releasing this report later, later this afternoon, uh, will finally hopefully give them some closure. We will be hearing from the Department of Justice later uh, this afternoon as well. They will be having a press conference in Uvalde. And then after that, we are going to hear uh, from family members as well once they get the report and start reading through it. So mm -hmm. it's going to definitely be a tough day. Uh, in Uvalde uh, throughout really today and then really the rest of the week as many of them are going to be re reliving all of this. I'm so glad you'll be there with them. Uh, Shimon, on a day like today, your reporting is the reason uh, they finally got some deserved answers. So thank you, Shimon. Well, overnight, another round of U.S. airstrikes in Yemen, the fourth in less than a week. U.S. forces trying to stop Iran-backed Houthi militants from attacking ships in the Red Sea. Just hours earlier, the Houthis struck a U.S.-owned and operated vessel in the Gulf of Aden for the second time in a week. Let's go straight to the Pentagon and bring in our Natasha Bertrand, who joins us with more. What do we know about this latest? Is this the fourth round of strikes? Poppy, the fourth round of strikes in just under a week and the third round that the U.S. has carried out unilaterally without in, in, without conjunction with allies. And that's really significant here because the U.S. appears really to be taking matters into its own hands when it comes to defending uh, shipping in the Red Sea. Now, last night's strikes were aimed at 14 Houthi missile launchers, and they were taken out by Tomahawk missiles that were launched by U.S. Navy ships, as well as by a guided missile submarine. And the reason that the U.S. conducted these attacks, the second round uh, of attacks just this week is, according to Central Command, because these missiles on launch rails presented an imminent threat to mer merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships in the region and could have been fired at any time, prompting U.S. forces to exercise their inherent right and obligation to defend themselves. Now, this is similar to a, an attack that the U.S. carried out earlier this week on Houthi uh, anti-ship missiles that they launched essentially preemptively as they saw the Houthis preparing to launch those missiles. So the U.S. really seems now to be taking the initiative, seeing the Houthis preparing to launch these missiles, putting these missile launchers uh, on targets and taking them out before they can actually launch these attacks. Natasha, I think the question that I have, particularly as the, the kind of efforts have moved to this scale, is what is the longer term game here? Is it just to take them out one off each time they load missiles to fire? Or is there some 
broader, bigger picture that they're looking at? Well, that's the big question, because these rounds of strikes, they have not been working. Uh, The Houthis did launch uh, additional attacks over the last several days, targeting U.S. merchant vessels in the Red Sea and posing a threat to U.S. Navy uh, ships there as well. And so the question now is, is this going to continue this kind of escalating tit for tat? And how does that factor into U.S. concerns about this escalating even further uh, into the region? Now, Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, he was asked just yesterday about concerns that this conflict could widen uh, beyond Gaza and Israel, given the attacks that we continue to see from the Houthis on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Here's what he said. Clearly, there are tensions uh, in the Middle East. There have been tensions there uh, since the Israel-Hamas conflict has kicked off. But to answer your question, no. We currently assess that the fight between Israel and Hamas continues to remain contained in Gaza. Now, the Pentagon has said for its part that they're going to continue to do what they can to defend their own assets, of course, and Red, uh, Red Sea shipping. But the question remains is if if they aren't taking out enough of the Houthis' capabilities to keep up with the, with the attacks that they have been launching, uh, then how do you eventually deter them? Uh, that is the big question that the U.S. military is grappling with at this point. For sure. Or does it inflame the situation? Natasha, the Pentagon, thanks very much. Donald Trump lashing out in court loudly, calling the defamation lawsuit against him a, quote, witch hunt. The four key words he also said that reveal the campaign game he's very clearly playing right now. Also new overnight, Pakistan striking Iran in response to Iran's deadly attacks there yesterday. Why this could inflame an already very tense Middle East. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I would love it. Four words. The embodiment of saying the quiet part out loud. Four words that laid bare the reality of the central pillar of Donald Trump's political strategy. Those four words came during a contentious and outright remarkable exchange with New York federal judge Lewis Kaplan, after Kaplan threatened to kick Trump out of the court for, quote, disruptive comments. I would love it, Trump said, throwing his hands up in the air, according to reporters in the room. I would love it, he repeated. Now, in a normal proceeding, it would mark a surreal moment for Trump on trial for civil defamation after a jury has already found he was civilly liable for sexual assault. It was clearly for effect. Now, Trump wasn't required to even be in attendance. In fact, he didn't attend the last trial at all. But for a presidential candidate who has transformed his avalanche of legal issues into a clear cut and for now very successful primary campaign strategy, The decision to detour from New York City to New York City from New Hampshire on consecutive days was about as intentional as it gets. In fact, he said as much after his dominant win in Iowa. If I didn't get indicted all these times and if they didn't unfairly go after, I would have won. But it would have been much closer, I tell you. It is not subtle, nor should note, is it normal? But it is unequivocally the plan, one that has corresponded with major boosts in fundraising major bumps in Republican support. And just a few days before a potentially decisive New Hampshire primary, a growing sense of inevitability as the Republican presidential nominee, which takes us back to those four words in the New York courtroom. The judge's threat to eject Trump was an action the former president appeared to be actively courting. Kaplan saw his audible, quote, witch hunt and con job exclamations for what they were, noting with clear awareness, quote, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from this trial. I understand you are very eager for me to do that. 
Trump's response captured this moment in politics in this Republican primary with absolute precision. Four words. I would love it. Thank you, Phil. Very satisfying. Joining us now, CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney to the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig, and Westchester County District Attorney and former Southern District of New York Division Chief Mimi Roca. They both, I should note, appeared before Judge Kaplan, who had those exchanges with Trump yesterday. Good morning. Thank you guys very much for being here. To the brilliant question Phil asked you last hour, Ellie, I'm going to pose it to you, Mimi, and that is, if Trump were anyone else, would he have gotten thrown out of that courtroom yesterday? Yes, eventually. Um, I do think Judge Kaplan would have given the warning that he gave. Um, but, you know, he probably gave a little longer leash because of all the reasons that we know that the 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 pushback, if he is thrown out, will be even greater. And because Judge Kaplan is smart enough to know, as you just relayed, that this is exactly what Trump wants. He wants to be thrown out so he can be perceived as the victim. And Judge Kaplan um, is smart enough not only to know it, but to say it out loud himself. He's the first judge, I think, to really sort of call Trump on his bluff in that way. And just so people understand, Judge Kaplan is, I don't know a better word for it, he's scary. I mean, right? There's 40-some judges in that courthouse. Terrifying. You would get a little bit, when you went into Judge Kaplan's courtroom, you would go, okay, I better be on my game. I mean, he is smart. He takes no guff. And so it's interesting to see the dynamic happen in there. Like, can we take a step back for a minute and remind people what this is actually about? Yes. I, I feel like we have spent, and to some degree, you're, we play into it when yeah. it becomes, we're talking about Trump's antics and whether or not he should have been kicked out. We're not talking about the fact that he was found liable for sexual assault, mm -hmm. he was found liable for defamation. What's this trial about? You're, it, that's such a great point because we, you, the, the dramatics are all over this. So the core of what this is about is E. Jean Carroll sued Donald Trump. It's a civil case, not a criminal case, for in the first trial that happened last year for sexually assaulting him and for defaming him. And the jury found in E. Jean Carroll's favor on all but one of the claims that she made. This is the same thing, but it has to do with earlier statements that Donald Trump made while he was president. So the core of this is what happened in that department store, as alleged by E. Jean Carroll, which a jury has found was sexual assault, and then his later comment, Donald Trump's later comments, which a jury has found was defamatory. What we're doing here is the jury's deciding how much money, that's it, how much damages Donald Trump owes E. Jean Carroll. And can I just add to, because it is so important to talk about what's happening in the courtroom and not his antics. E. Jean Carroll is having to face the person for the first time face-to-face -face who a jury has found raped her. Um, that is really hard to do under any circumstances. I mean, both of us have been with victims who have had to do that when there's no one watching. Having to do that when it's the former president, running for president, powerful person, who is trying to intimidate you, which he clearly is. He's trying to intimidate the judge. I think he's trying to intimidate the jury. He is also trying to intimidate her. And I just think we have to take a moment and talk that she is brave for doing this. I mean, she it takes so much courage to do this. And it's probably a lot harder than she's letting it on and that people can see. Um, she's a survivor and she's facing the person who assaulted her. To your very important point. Let's just read for people a little bit of what she said when she was asked about the social media attacks that she endured uh, after all of this. It makes it hard for a girl to get up in the morning. I know I'm old. I know I'm 80. I know I'm not a pretty young woman, but it makes it tough to go on 
with the day. That gets lost a lot of times, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, even when we're talking about what the trial is about, you know, we're talking about damages, we're talking about money. Um, you know, her attorney said, how much will it take to get him to stop? But this isn't about money. She really wants him to stop. And it's, you know, the sexual assault that the jury found happened on one particular day. But the bullying and the harassment and the damage has been continuing since then. And it continued in the courtroom in front of all of us. So um, I think that makes him look small. It's different than him bullying the judge, um, you know, doing what he did in, in the AG case. I think when he, you do this to someone who's a survivor, who's an older woman, it, I think, makes him look small. Yeah, I think we'll see that reflected in, in the jury's award here. I think that they're allowed to assess how much emotional damage and suffering has this victim been through. And, and I think we're going to see that in a few days when we get a verdict. Uh, and important point, we will hear in a couple of days. We'll know soon. Mimi, thank you. Ali, thank you. Well, the youngest hostage taken on October 7th turns one year old today. What his family is doing to celebrate him as they work to have him released. And the CEO of Boeing promising the company will, quote, get better after the mid-flight blowout of a door plug on an Alaskan Airlines 3, uh, 737 MAX 9. The woman leading the investigation, the head of the NTSB, she is here. She is with us next. Welcome back. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun is vowing the company will, quote, learn from the Alaska Airlines incident that forced that emergency landing right after takeoff when a part of the airplane's main body flew off mid-flight earlier this month. Calhoun promised that Boeing and its partners, quote, will get better during this town hall meeting that he had last night with contractors who built the 737 MAX 9's fuselage. And this comes as the National Transportation Safety Board is still trying to determine whether bolts were even installed on the door plug that blew out. The chair of the NTSB, Jennifer Hammondy, joins us now. Am I right in that? Are you still trying to determine that? Or do you have an update for us this morning? That's right. Now, our on-scene work in Portland has been completed. Okay. We've moved the door plug and the components back to D.C., but we still have a lot to work out. You are going to brief House lawmakers right after this. It's closed, it's closed uh, door. You're going to have a closed door briefing with senators. I wonder what you're going to tell them. Yeah, so uh, meeting with the House, uh, and we uh, have had a similar meeting with the Senate. Their focus, rightfully, is ensuring the safety of the flying public. And also uh, asking the NTSB what the breadth of our investigation is and ensuring that we have what we need to conduct our investigation. Yeah, uh, And so we'll talk about uh, everything from how uh, the door plug uh, was manufactured and its structure uh, based on a diagram that we sent out uh, publicly uh, all the way through uh, production and quality mm -hmm. assurance. So can we talk about production and quality assurance? Because here's what we know, right? We know that this part of the fuselage was made by a company named Spirit Aerosystems in Malaysia. They had spun off actually from Boeing about 20 years ago. Then it goes to a supplier factory in Kansas. Then it goes to Boeing in the state of Washington. And I just wonder if outsourcing, you know, having things from here and here and here and coming together. Do you have any concerns about how these planes are coming together now? Is that a question? Because John Tester, as you know, the senator from Montana, said they need to figure out what caused the problem because it may be systemic. 
Well, that will be part of our investigation. When the NTSB conducts an investigation, we go very broad and we're very meticulous. We don't start to narrow uh, until we uh, begin our process of the investigation. And so we will look at everything from manufacture through delivery and past delivery, uh, what Alaska even did with the plane mm -hmm. after they received it, because there could be work that was completed then too, and we'll want those records. The, uh, the FAA has grounded all of these 737 uh, Boeing MAX 9s until they deem it safe to fly. But I'm really interested, Jennifer, just what do you think? I mean, what's gonna tell you they're safe to fly? For the NTSB, our entire mission is to determine what happened, why it happened, and to prevent it from happening again. We believe we need to know that to ensure safety. Now, the FAA, they're the regulators. They uh -huh. focus on regulating safety in our skies. I will say we have an incredible safety partnership. I think the FAA administrator has taken Bold, decisive action. We've been in constant communication. I've also been in communication with the secretary. And rightfully, their main focus, as is ours, is on safety and not rushing through this. Okay, that makes total sense. I, I just wonder, are you 100% certain that the NTSB can determine exactly what happened here? Do you see what I'm saying? Because yep. if, if you can't pinpoint it, then can these planes ever fly again? Absolutely. We have incredibly high-skilled workers uh, from our labs to our investigators, and we are very comprehensive, very meticulous in our work. We cannot rush through this, yeah. which is what we've been emphasizing, because you want to make sure we are getting the right answers to get to the right solutions. That's why it takes time. We have just a couple of days in the middle of all of this for lawmakers to reach a deal to avert at least a partial government shutdown. You're a government agency. What would a shutdown do to this investigation? It would stop the investigation. Now that the planes have been grounded and we have the evidence that we need, uh, according to the law, there would be no imminent threat to life or property. So the law hmm. would prohibit us from continuing the investigation. We'd have to pause. Uh, and even a long-term full year CR, continuing resolution, would put us in a very difficult position as an agency. Jennifer Hamidi, thank you. We look forward to hearing more uh, after you speak with lawmakers today. Thanks. Well, after a critical meeting with President Biden, House Speaker Mike Johnson pouring cold water on more potential Ukraine aid and a border deal. We're going to be live on the ground in Ukraine and at the border to discuss that impact next. Texas will not surrender. That is a quote from the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton echoing William Travis of the Alamo. Paxton saying, the state will continue to block the U.S. Border Patrol's access to a public park near the southern border that Texas took control of a week ago. And now state authorities have begun arresting migrants there, charging them with criminal trespassing. Now that comes as House Speaker Mike Johnson told CNN any deal on border security will be dead on arrival in the House after he met with President Biden and other top lawmakers yesterday. And lawmakers insist aid to Ukraine must be tied to any border deal. You see 
why there's a bit of a problem here. CNN has reporters on the ground and places to talk about the impact of inaction on Capitol Hill. Let's begin with Rosa Flores in, live in Eagle Pass, Texas. Rosa, the immediate impact of what's happening in Washington as you see it on the ground, how would you describe it? You know, here in Eagle Pass, it means more razor wire like the one that you see behind me in a public park where people normally go and try to enjoy the river. They can't do that anymore. But, you know, it's not just border communities. It is also cities like New York and Chicago and Denver that are seeing a huge influx of migrants. And so, Phil, really, it's municipalities having to do the patchwork for the federal government because the immigration system is broken. Can you talk, Rosa, about the arrests that we just mentioned that you learned more about overnight? Because this is this battle between can the federal government, which has jurisdiction over immigration, uh, get in there? Or is it just state patrol that is handling it now in that part? You know, Poppy, and that's what's fascinating because this is Texas just upping the ante. First of all, they took over Shelby Park. They put razor wire like the one that you see behind me. And now they are arresting migrants for criminal trespass. And you got to think about it like this. Border Patrol does not have access to that area, which means the state of Texas is determining the outcome of uh, what migrants have to face first. In this case, according to Texas DPS, single men and single women are being um, arrested for criminal trespass. So they have to deal with the state charge first. Families and children are turned over to U.S. Border Patrol. Again, this is the state of Texas determining the outcome because Border Patrol is not in that area. And that just speaks to this uh, um, sparring relationship between the uh, state of Texas and the Biden administration. And we're trying to figure out what's next because the deadline given by DHS to Texas to uh, give access to Border Patrol was yesterday. That expired. We're waiting to see what the next move is by DHS. Poppy, Phil. Fred, over to you, our senior international correspondent, Fred Plankin. Fred, I'm really glad we had you on the show right now because yesterday a U.S. senator cited your piece on Bradley fighting vehicles to underscore the difficulties the Ukrainians are having right now, how they're trying to respond to not having any idea whether more aid uh, is coming on our show, was talking about your piece. What are you seeing on the ground? How are Ukrainians responding here? Well, you know what? It's a huge concern for the Ukrainians. Uh, the fact that this U.S. aid uh, is, uh, is not clear whether or not there's going to be more of that military aid. And you can see that really transcend the entire battlefield here in Ukraine. You'd be surprised if you go to the frontline areas how much American gear you actually see there. It's not only those Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, it's anything from cars, trucks, Hummers, MRAPs, everything that needs to stay in the fight. One of the areas, guys, where I've really seen a big impact of all this uh, already is we were at one of the most active front lines here in Ukraine. It's near a town called Marinka, where the Russians are constantly trying to assault. And we were with an artillery unit that has a U.S.-provided M777 howitzer. And they said that because of ammo shortages, they're only able to shoot about half as much as they used to be able to shoot. They said before it was 50 to 60 rounds they were able to fire per day. Now they say it's about 20, in best case, 30. So already a big impact happening there. And if you listen to uh, the president of this country, Volodymyr Zelensky, he said that, of course, if the U.S. doesn't provide further aid, it's going to weaken Ukraine. There could be some gains for the Russians, even though the Russians are also losing a lot of people on the front lines right now. But it certainly will mean that more Ukrainians are going to get hurt and more Ukrainians are going to die. On the battlefield, 
but possibly also in places like where I am right now in the cities of Ukraine. Because, of course, one of the things that we have seen over the past years is attacks on civilian infrastructure in Ukrainian cities. One of the things that's preventing that is, of course, air defense provided by the allies, but first and foremost by the United States. And if missiles, for instance, for air defense systems are not going to keep coming to the Ukrainians, could have a massive impact on the civilian population here in this country. So there's a huge concern among civilians here in Ukraine and among the military as well. The folks that we've been speaking to say that the U.S. aid that they're getting absolutely key to keeping them in the fight and for holding the Russians up, guys. And getting more of that aid contingent on getting a border deal where, where Rosa is at the center of all of it. Rosa, Fred, thank you very much. We're looking at the very real impact of this funding fight in Washington. Well, next week's Republican primary in New Hampshire, not the only one to watch, at least according to Dean Phillips. Andrew Yang is here to discuss why he is backing Phillips' campaign to unseat Biden as a Democratic nominee. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, Democrat Dean Phillips set to hold events in New Hampshire for his long shot campaign to challenge President Biden. Not just Republicans, Democrats as well. Remember, Democrats in the state hold their primary next Tuesday. But President Biden doesn't appear to be worried. He has no plans to travel to the state and is actually going to North Carolina today to talk about his economic plans. And perhaps more importantly, Biden is still polling far ahead of Phillips and other challengers, despite not even being on the ballot in New Hampshire. Nearly 70% of Democratic voters say they'll write his name in. That's according to the latest CNN poll. Now, Biden didn't file in the state because the Democratic National Committee, at Biden's behest, changed the rules to put South Carolina and its primary first. Joining us now is 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. He's supporting Dean Phillips. We'll be hitting the campaign trail with him in New Hampshire today. I appreciate your time, Andrew. It's always great to see you. You said earlier this week in an interview that it's a matter of uh, whether Dean Phillips can get big enough, fast enough to really kind of have an impact on this race. What creates the big enough and fast enough, and is it possible before the primary? There's really one factor, Phil, and it's if people hear about Dean Phillips on the ground here in New Hampshire. We have a, a poll that was released yesterday that said that Dean's at 28% in New Hampshire with about 50% name ID. When people find out that there's a 54-year-old three-term member of Congress running against Joe, they get excited. So the question is whether New Hampshire voters will tune in. I think they will, and I think Dean's going to put up a surprisingly big number on Tuesday. What is surprisingly big for you? Like, what's the threshold here that you think he needs to hit to really have a chance to move this forward? I was talking to our CNN colleague, S.E. Cup, and she set the threshold at 30%. She said, look, if he gets above 30%, that is undeniable. Uh, I think he's going to either come close to that number uh, or maybe even push past it. But even my driver on the way to, <laughs> to the office today said, there's another Democrat running who's not Joe Biden. And what he said is what we're all thinking, which is Joe Biden is a good man, has been a fine president, but he should step aside for the next generation, particularly because polls show the president losing to Donald Trump by eight points in Georgia, eight points in Michigan, nine points in North Carolina. I think that's why he's heading to North Carolina, Phil. Uh, because his numbers are crumbling across the board in the swing states. You know, to that point, if you look at the particularly Democratic electorate, but also the electorate that gave Joe Biden the victory in Georgia in uh, 2020, it makes him competitive, makes Democrats competitive in North Carolina. 
the cornerstone of that electorate is African-American. It is a black uh, electorate. That's what wins in Georgia. That's what gives Democrats, particularly in urban areas, a chance in North Carolina. Why is Dean Phillips, a white guy from Minnesota, who doesn't talk a ton about these issues, why is he somebody who can do better than Biden in those states? If you look nationally at Biden's approval rating, it's been declining in all groups. Uh, as one example, he's losing to Trump among Latinos, which is a traditionally uh, Democratic constituency. And the same polls that show Joe Biden losing to Donald Trump show a generic Democrat winning over Trump by six, seven, eight points. And if right. you think about it, Bill, it's common sense that if you had a fresh 54-year-old uh, non-polarizing figure, all of a sudden, most Americans would say, hey, I prefer that over Trump. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, if, if, if that's the matchup. Unfortunately, Joe Biden right now has uh, a, a lot of baggage associated with him from his age, from inflation, uh, and, and from the fact that many people look back fondly on the Trump economy, rightly or wrongly. I wanted to ask you, on Saturday, hedge fund investor Bill Ackman endorsed Phillips, said he'd be sending a million dollars. You talk about name ID, that's pretty critical uh, to a super PAC supporting his campaign. Ackman, obviously very critical of DEI. On Tuesday, uh, he said he expected Phillips to remove the reference to DEI from his campaign site. A reference was later removed, replaced by another framing. He was asked, Phillips was asked about this by our Brianna Keeler yesterday. This is what he said. I believe in diversity. I believe in equity. I believe in inclusion. But what has inclusion done for the black community in this country? What have, what have both parties done to close the racial wealth gap? I want to take it a step further. I made that change to restorative justice. If a donor came to me and told me to do something, I will tell the donor to go pound sand. The idea that he made the change and just happened to correspond with Bill Hackman saying what he said and asking what he asked on Twitter after giving a million dollar donation, you understand why people might be a little skeptical of that. Uh, you know, if you spend time with Dean, you understand he cares very, very deeply uh, about these issues. It's why he's proposed and signed the Medicare for All bill, which, by the way, would, would help families of color disproportionately. He's for a baby bond of $1,000 for every American child, which, again, would help communities of color disproportionately. Dean is about solving these problems for real, in yeah. real life, for American families. The enhanced child tax credit lift millions uh, of kids out of poverty. That's why Dean is running. Uh, and I'm pumped to make that case to the folks, not just here in New Hampshire, but in South Carolina and Michigan in the days ahead. Andrew Yang, we always appreciate your time. It'll be fascinating to watch this play out. Uh, 30% according to SE Cup, and I think you're co-opting that threshold, so I'm going to attribute it to you as well. Andrew Yang, appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Come to New Hampshire, everybody. Democracy in action. This might be our last shot at upgrading from the rematch that none of us wants. Daunting. <laughs> no lack of enthusiasm there from Andrew Yang. Uh, a great conversation, Phil. Thanks for that. So Buffalo, New York, no stranger to snow, but the latest forecast projects winter weather that has even the biggest Bills fans on alert. Must be Wolf Blitzer. And Donald Trump's presidential immunity appeal slows down sentencing for some of the January 6th convicts. How Trump's challenge could impact some of those convictions as well. Stay with us. So at least 40 people have been killed in nine states. This is following back-to-back -back winter storms. The threat, far from over, what's called lake effect snow, which is very dangerous. Those warnings are now in place for over a million people in western New York. 30 million people 
across the United States facing these winter storm alerts as well. Elisa Rafa is joining us in Buffalo. People know how to handle snow there. So when it's, you know, potentially an issue for them, it's really saying something. Oh, absolutely. They were getting two to three inches in 30 minutes at some point yesterday. Snowfall rates could continue to be two to four inches per hour. And the weather service says that that's calmed down from what it was yesterday and the overnight as that snow band just continues to kind of wallop Buffalo and the north and south cities just keeps oscillating up and down. But it, I mean, we drove in last night and it looked like a winter wonderland. Still no trucks allowed on I-90 because they're concerned about some of the road conditions. The Sabres are playing tonight because they couldn't get through the snow yesterday and schools have been closed again. The Bills have a game on Sunday and we're hoping and thinking those fans can get out there and do another round of shoveling. But some of these snow totals have been insane. We're talking three to four feet. I have my little trusty ruler here that's taking me through multiple snowstorms across the country. We're in a drift right now, but I lose my ruler just about in a drift. We're about a foot of drift right now. And uh, for uh, some other places up near Watertown, my ruler would do no justice. You need a yardstick uh, for some of those totals that have been 20, 30 inches for some places like Lackawanna, West Seneca, and then up towards Watertown. Just incredible what some of these totals have been. Now, I want to show you the radar, and you can see both bands that are continuing to pump over Lakes Erie and Ontario because we have this cold Arctic air that's coming across the ice-free and relatively warmer lakes, and that's what pumps the moisture into the cold air and gets all of that snow just right on shore of the lakes. And when you look at that snow depth, you can see that the where those two bullseyes are, just the totals that are just racking up in feet. Just incredible to see this much snow in such a short amount of time, and this is their, their second round of it. And if we look at the ice extent on the Great Lakes. It is well below average for this time of year. Typically, we would see about 20% of ice coverage. We're only at about eight, and that's what fuels the snow as it continues through the day today. Guys. Alyssa Rafa, thank you very much. Welcome to CNN. We're so happy to have you here on CNN this morning. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And we continue right now. Nikki Haley is counting on Democrats and liberals to infiltrate your Republican primary. By the way, what's that all about? A vote for Nikki Haley this Tuesday is a vote for Joe Biden and a Democrat Congress this November, because that's what's going to happen. Now, I know Trump threw a, a temper tantrum about me last night. I heard that. And I've seen the commercials. This is the chance to say, do we want more of the same or do we want to go forward? We don't want more of the same with the Trump-Biden thing. The attacks are flying in New Hampshire ahead of the primary on Tuesday. Nikki Haley, Donald Trump trading shots in the Granite State last night while Ron DeSantis shifts his focus to the next race in South Carolina. Can Haley break into Trump's commanding lead? And today, the Justice Department will release its long-awaited review of the law enforcement response to the 2022 shooting in Uvalde, Texas. That attack left 19 children and two teachers dead at Robb Elementary School. In just a moment, we will talk to a Texas state senator that represents the district. Also, a prosecutor investigating this attack on a television station in Ecuador last week gunned down in broad daylight. The country's attorney general says she will press ahead in this crackdown there on organized crime. We have a live report from Ecuador straight ahead. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now.
Just five days to go until the New Hampshire primary, and it is quickly turning into a two-candidate battle. Tonight, Nikki Haley takes questions in a CNN town hall in New Hampshire. It comes as Donald Trump focuses his attacks on her, and Ron DeSantis seems to be giving up on his chances in the state. Trump is seeking a knockout blow on Tuesday. He's now co-opting Haley's electability message and claiming he's the only one who can beat President Biden in November. The clock is ticking down for Haley to stop Trump's seemingly inevitable march to the nomination. And that clock underscoring why anxious Republicans are urging Nikki Haley and her campaign to escalate her attacks on the front runner, be more aggressive in these closing days. Last night at Haley's rally, Haley took a swipe at Trump's age. The majority of Americans have said they don't want their options to be two 80-year-olds for president. We've got to move past that. Meanwhile, Ron DeSantis appears to be seeding New Hampshire in a last-ditch effort to save his own campaign, pulling staff and resources out of the Granite State, sending them to South Carolina instead, of, instead for next month's primary. DeSantis' super PAC, the super PAC supporting him, laying off uh, several of its people, scaling back plans to compete in New Hampshire and other Super Tuesday states. Trump, now predicting DeSantis, isn't going to be around much longer. What the hell happened to Ron? Does anybody know what happened to I think I happened to Ron. I think he's going to be gone. I think all of those applause, that was funny. But I think, he's, I think you can probably save him for about a week or so because I think he's going to be gone. All right. We start with CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton here with all the numbers. Explain why Trump is so unhappy, what? upset about the um, undeclared. Yeah. Why is Trump so unhappy? I guess, you know, Trump always finds something to be unhappy about. But OK, take a look at our last poll from CNN, the choice for GOP nominee in New Hampshire with Christian Ramaswamy voters reallocated to second choice. If you look among registered Republicans, look at this large advantage that Donald Trump has over Nikki Haley, 63 percent to 24 percent. But look among undeclareds, you see basically the inverse of that, right? Where Nikki Haley's at 59% and Donald Trump's at 22%. So not really much of a surprise that he wants Republicans voting in this primary and not undeclareds. But here's the question, you know, this sort of, what is that all about, Donald Trump keeps saying? What is that all about, you know, that you have these undeclareds potentially voting in the primary? All right, so I wanna take you back through history a little bit. Okay, this is New Hampshire GOP primary voters who aren't registered Republicans. This year, according to our poll, it's going to be about 45% of the electorate that isn't registered Republicans. The question I had, Poppy, is yeah. how unusual is this? How unusual is this? Well, look back through history. In 2016, when Trump, of course, won New Hampshire, it was 40%. The last time there was no competitive, really competitive Democratic primary, right, when there was a Democratic incumbent back in 2012, look at that. It was 47%. That is basically the same as we're seeing right now, 45% versus 47%. So the fact is, what's going on in New Hampshire isn't all that unusual. Okay, so I, I had one other question. Then. Yeah. But explain, this would be then Democrats and undeclareds. Uh, this would be uh, registered undeclareds or those who register on the day of the primary. Yeah, okay, who register on the day of the primary. So as we move forward... We didn't hear him complain about it much in 2016. Is that right? Yeah, we didn't hear him complain much about it in 2016. Why? Because he actually did better among registered undeclareds than he did among registered Republicans. So now all of a sudden, the, flip, the script is flipped, so he's changed his mind. But here's the thing I would just note. Nationally, Trump is still so far ahead. So New Hampshire may just really be a bump in the road. He's complaining now. He's still probably going to win New Hampshire, but will be closer. But the fact is Trump is still the heavy favorite yeah, well, regardless he of He wants to motivate his supporters to get out on yes. Tuesday. Thank yeah. you, Harry. Thank As you. always, appreciate it. Phil.
Well, later today, the Justice Department will release its review of the Uvalde school shooting, where 19 children and two teachers were gunned down inside Robb Elementary. Now, since that day, nearly 20 months ago, there have been questions about why it took 77 minutes to stop the gunman who opened fire in two adjoining classrooms as more than 370 law enforcement officers arrived at the scene. Attorney General Merrick Garland traveled to Uvalde yesterday, where he met with local officials and family members of the victims ahead of today's release of the Justice Department's report. The briefing that we received today uh, was very positive. Uh, we look forward to seeing the report because we think it will validate a lot of our uh, feelings already as to what transpired and what didn't transpire, and what should have happened. There was a lot of information, um, and I guess the next step is to find out what will be done with this information. Joining us now is Texas State Senator who represents Uvalde, Roland Gutierrez. He's also running for the U.S. Senate seat against Ted Cruz, currently in the Democratic primary. Uh, sir, we appreciate your time this morning. I, I want to start with, based on what we know up to this point, what do we expect to be in this report? What do we expect parents and families to be able to read here? Well, yesterday I got a briefing. Thank you very much for the time, by the way. Uh, I got a briefing from the Attorney General's office last night, and essentially it looks at everything from A to Z. Uh, 1,400 uh, pieces, individual pieces, 14,000 individual pieces of evidence, 280 plus interviews of people on the ground, family members, and so on. I think that what we're going to see is everything that didn't happen and everything that was supposed to happen. There was tremendous error by state uh, officials, by local officials on the ground. There was lapses in communication. There was failures of equipment. There was delays in getting equipment that they didn't need to begin with. Uh, there was miscommunication by way, post miscommunication by way of law enforcement, even in interviews to the media, those inaccuracies and those misstatements caused confusion in the community. There was a lack of uh, victims coordination, if you will. Uh, parents were told that their children were dead when they were indeed or alive, and some were told that their children were alive when they were indeed dead. Mm. There was a tremendous folly of errors that occurred on that day and on the days and weeks and months thereafter. Things that I've seen and known about and talked about, but now finally we're getting some transparency and some light here and, and so that people could see what happened in, 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 in whole. So important for those families and so important for this country and preventing future responses like this. When you were with us, just last year, you said to me, I hope everybody in the United States understands the full effect of what happened in Uvalde and the full effect of how government has failed them in the state of Texas. Do you believe, as far as you've been briefed on this report, that what it lays out in the sunshine, you know, on these issues, the transparency, will prevent a response like this ever again in Texas or elsewhere? I think it's important to note that this is the worst law enforcement response to a school shooting in our nation's history period. And we can't ever let this happen again. And there are policies in that, that should be in place in Texas. Unfortunately, the policyholders in this state, the people that are controlling this state, Republican leaders, both in the House and the Senate, and of course, our leadership have decided to great loose gun laws that allow anybody and anybody, any everybody to access a weapon of this nature. I mean, this young man was 18 years old. He bought a gun in a small town in Texas at the only gun shop in Texas on day one. Uh, the next day, he bought 900 plus rounds of ammunition. And on the third day, he bought he picked up his AR-15 again. 
a second AR-15. No one thought that that set of events was significant. In other states, that would have been considered possibly a red flag. So it's my hope that we not only learn best practices, sure, going forward, but we have to change our policy. And if our policymakers aren't willing to create some changes, then we need to get rid of those policymakers. To that point, you worked uh, both on the legislative front, but also with the families pushing legislation related to changes in gun laws, in gun policy, in the wake of what happened in Uvalde. Um, you ran into a lot of resistance. Do you feel like this will help those efforts moving forward, give you another chance to move forward on those issues in a state like Texas? You know, I don't know what people need to see. The fact is, after this horrible tragedy happened, even 70 percent of Republican voters were saying we needed to raise an age limit in Texas. We needed to have extreme risk protective orders and universal background checks. Maybe it wasn't the full on assault weapons ban that I often talk about with certain exceptions. But the fact is, Republican politicians just simply aren't listening in this state. They're not even listening to their own constituents that want change in this space. Our children are growing up with a different kind of anxiety. These children die just like we tell them to. They shut the lights, close the door, they huddled in a corner. And in the end, in that second classroom, you see two stacks of kids, two teachers trying to shield their children, one dead, one barely living. The second teacher died in a parking lot because the cops had surrounded all the arterial streets and the ambulance couldn't get to the hospital. We have to look at these tragedies and understand that they don't happen in a vacuum and understand that things happen and cops make bad decisions. And sometimes cops are just plain cowardly. I've seen all of the videos. I've seen even the audio statements where cops would say there's an AR-15 in there. There's an AR-15. I've even seen the audio tape and the videotape where one cop says, I don't want to die today. Those children didn't want to die either. Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, I'm so glad you're with us on such an important and meaningful day for the families. Thank you. Well, happening today, an Israeli family will hold a public event marking the first birthday of the youngest hostage taken on October 7th. The family of Kafir Bibas is expected to make an impassioned plea for his release, as well as the release of his parents and brother. However, it's unclear whether the child is still alive. These Israel Defense Forces said in November that it was assessing a claim by Hamas's military arm that the infant was killed in Israeli airstrikes. CNN has not been able to confirm the deaths nor the claim of the airstrike. House Speaker Mike Johnson pouring some cold water on the latest proposal on a border deal from the White House. That also means any new aid to Ukraine is in real jeopardy. We're going to speak to close Biden ally, Democratic Senator Chris Coons, next about where things go from here. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, the fate of an immigration deal is really up in the air. Congress attempting to do the nearly impossible compromise on immigration. Bipartisan negotiations are continuing in the Senate for a border deal that is tied to unlocking more funding for Israel and Ukraine. However, if that bill passes the Senate, its fate in the House is very uncertain. Our Caitlin Collins pressed House Speaker Mike Johnson on exactly that last night. Watch. You said the devil is in the details here, that you want to see what the Senate is offering. But then why did you tell the Republican conference in a call the other day that that bill is dead on arrival in the House? 
If the bill looks like some of the things that have been rumored, of course it's dead in the House because it wouldn't solve the problem. You can't just do pieces of this and leave, for example, parole untouched, leave the current broken parole process untouched because it's a giant loophole that would allow all these people to continue to come in. Will you still be able to say that the border is a crisis if you rejected a deal that maybe doesn't do everything that you wanted but does do some stuff to address the border? Caitlin, you're, you're asking me to address a hypothetical. I have no idea. It doesn't matter to me who votes for what. But it's not hypothetical. No, it is because we don't know what the text is. Soon, they said. You know the they general said. outlines of it, though. Caitlin Collins is with us now. I love that exchange for a number of different reasons. Um, <clears throat> one, he's saying it's set on arrival based on text, and now he says he doesn't have access to. Uh, but two, it's not a hypothetical question because there are Senate Republicans multiple high-level Senate Republicans who have said it's not going to get better than this. Unless we have 60 votes in the Senate next cycle, it's just simply there's no better moment. What was your thought after you were done with that conversation? I mean, Phil, you know how this works on the Hill. And to hear people like Senator McConnell and John Cornyn and John Thune come out and say, you know, we should take this. This is a a good deal that they feel like they've got the White House on the ropes when it comes to, to having leverage here. That doesn't really happen that often. And they're clearly signaling to to Mike Johnson. And so they had this meeting at the White House yesterday. And it's Chuck Schumer, President Biden, Mike Johnson, Hakeem Jeffries. Mike Johnson's on an island in that room. He is the only one who who is kind of thinking in his mind of what the far right and his party and the hardliners, how they're going to respond to this bill. And so I think the issue that he finds himself in and where we may see the pressure really uh, amp up on him in the coming days is the Senate is signaling that they're preparing to move on their immigration bill. And maybe we don't know exactly what's in it, but there are broad outlines that have pretty much stayed the same. And so the question is, what does he do? And he has not committed to putting it on the floor. But I do think it puts them in the issue of, you know, they're taking trips to the border. They're doing all of this. If they don't take this compromise deal, if they say we'll do nothing instead, can they still continue to message on it the way that they have been? And this is all tied to, does the U.S. send more funding to Ukraine and Israel? You asked him about Ukraine last night. I thought it was so interesting. You're like, what did the president say in response? And he's like, basically, they all just went around the table and said their own sort of thoughts. Like, here's part of your interview with him on Ukraine. We all oppose Vladimir Putin and the barbarism and the aggression that he's, uh, he's shown there, and he must be stopped. But what's happening in Ukraine right now, that status quo cannot be maintained. That's unacceptable. We cannot spend billions of dollars without a clear strategy articulated. And I told the president in the meeting today, again, as I've been saying repeatedly, sir, you have to articulate what the strategy is. What is the end game? What is is the outcome of that that we're trying to achieve? And how will we have accountability for the dollars, the precious taxpayer dollars of the American people? To be fair, that is something that he has maintained, has been his position. And he's been generally more positive about uh, providing yeah. more funding for Ukraine than since he's become House Speaker, than we've heard from a lot of Republicans. And I do think when you look at public polling, there is not the support that we used to see a year ago for Ukraine. And so I, I understand why he's asking those questions. But he actually was in the room and had the opportunity to ask those questions. And I asked what answers he got. And he said essentially that they just went around the room and all kind of did their talking points. And he didn't it wasn't an actual back and forth. Wasn't on the substance it was surprising there. to me listening to well, it. Like, you actually have the this chance, is your to, chance. Ask, to ask the questions. And, and, you know, Jake Sullivan's in the room, the national security advisor laying out what Ukraine needs. But I think what is going to be the heart of the issue for, for Speaker Johnson is even if he is OK with getting the Ukraine funding passed, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene say that if any Ukraine funding passes the House, 
she said she'd personally introduce the motion to oust him. And so the question is how he handles that, because she doesn't care what the White House articulates. She just doesn't believe that any more funding for Ukraine should be passed, period. Um, and we got to go but real quick. His thoughts on Trump. Because he's going to play a role whether or not this moves forward. He truthed about it last night. Trump doesn't think that this Truth. led this. We okay. haven't even seen this this bill, but Trump doesn't think that the Senate immigration bill should pass. But their relationship is interesting. He said they talk a lot, that they are talking about uh, what they're hearing, what policy they're trying to pursue in the House, if they can pursue anything. But they've had an interesting relationship because back in 2015, Mike Johnson, you know, congressman from Louisiana, was not a fan of Trump's and right. posted that he didn't believe that he should be the nominee. He did go on to endorse him. And of course, we've seen how that relationship has evolved. Just speaks to, to the power dynamics on Capitol Hill and the role that Trump is playing in what we're watching happen. Caitlin, thank you for getting up early. It was a really compelling interview. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. And joining us now is one of President Biden's closest allies in Washington, Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. He's the co-chair of the Biden-Harris campaign, also a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, just came back from a, a big trip as well, talking to world leaders, top business people. Senator, uh, there's a lot I want to get to here, but, but I want to start with kind of what I thought the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways from Caitlin's interview with the speaker was, which is basically, regardless of what comes out of a Senate bipartisan group working on immigration, I, I don't necessarily get the sense there's a path forward in the House. Phil, our job first is to make sure that the government doesn't shut down. With a series of votes today, we will send to the House a continuing resolution to keep the government open. It's my hope the House will do the same. The next job we have in front of us is to finalize this border security deal, which is very close to being done, and to pass the supplemental that President Biden requested months ago. Phil, every conversation, every meeting I was in in Europe, the first question was, will the United States continue to partner with 50 other countries who in combination are providing the funding, the support for Ukraine, for the first responders who put out the fires when Russian missiles strike power plants and hospitals, and for artillery shells and material and weapons support for the brave Ukrainians who are fighting on the front lines. I am optimistic, even confident that we will, but the politics of the House are concerning. Was the second question after the question about Ukraine, is Donald Trump going to be president again? Yes. And what did you say to that? No, I'm confident that Joe Biden will be reelected, but this will be a difficult election. Um, there are many Americans on both sides of this debate. And frankly, Phil, one of my concerns is that President Biden, in his first State of the Union, asked Congress to fix our broken immigration system, to take up and pass policy changes, revisions to law that he needs in order to fully secure our border and make our immigration system more legal, humane, and just. And we've had some Republicans saying in recent days in the House, they don't want to fix the immigration system in advance of the election. My hope is that the the cooler heads will prevail in the Republican caucus and those who have worked very hard here in the Senate, both Democrats and Republicans, to give President Biden both the funding he's requested to secure the border and policy changes they say are essential, that when we pass that in the Senate, the House will recognize this country can't wait 10 months more. This is urgent and we need to make progress on securing our border. Do you think that Democrats, on a, from a policy perspective, what they are willing to entertain, what they're willing to sign off on when it comes to restrictions uh, related to immigration are in a different place than they were a year, two years ago because of what's happened at the border? 
Yes, I think there's a willingness to reconsider the initial screening standard for asylum, for example, because so many people are now using the asylum process who ultimately, years later, after a court review, will be deemed ineligible for asylum. That's one of the biggest changes in recent years. But there's many Democrats who question whether the policy changes demanded by Republicans will actually make a difference at the border. Most Democrats would prefer a regional engagement that addresses the conditions in the countries folks are flowing from towards the United States, in addition to changes uh, in how we screen for asylum uh, and in how we treat folks when they're being detained or deported here. This has been a vigorous debate as long as I've been in the Senate. Uh, we have tried and tried and hopefully the politics of the re-election campaign will not get in the way of our proving some path forward here does exist. A, a Senate agreement in and of itself would be, I mean, something we haven't seen since the, <laughs> the bipartisan bill back in, what, 2000? I've, I've lost track of the last couple of decades, as you know better than anybody. Uh, I, I do want to ask, though... Well, Phil, it was 2013. That's I was what, in yes, the room. That's, we passed a broad, got 65 votes, if I recall correctly. bill. And the House never took it up. Right. And I think that's why, if, where there is concern about whether House Republicans will act, it does seem to be merited based on history. John Boehner, obviously a very different Speaker of the House, uh, even than Mike Johnson, ideologically. I do want to ask on other foreign policy issues, because there is a lot going on right now. The fourth U.S. strikes in Yemen targeting Houthi rebels. The, the, the biggest question that I have, given, one, the reticence of the administration to take this action until just a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, is what is the end game here? Well, President Biden and his national security team are correctly working tirelessly since the October 7th Hamas attacks on innocent civilians in Israel to deter Iran. I'll remind you, Iran is the regional source uh, of all this violence and uh, all these challenges because they are the folks who train and support and help fund the Houthis, Hamas, Hezbollah, um, the militias that have been striking American targets uh, in Iraq and in Syria. Uh, it is Iran that most needs to be deterred. President Biden and his team took a disciplined, thoughtful approach to these uh, Houthi attacks of drones and missiles on ships. They went to the UN Security Council and got a resolution. They got 11 other countries to sign up to share uh, the burden of the naval interception. They warned the Houthis. They took modest initial actions. Then they took more aggressive strikes. In the last two strikes, we've been hitting, our forces have been hitting Houthi launchers as they are about to strike ships. So uh, my hope is that we will find a way to deter Iran, but for the intermediate term, it's going to require more action uh, to prevent the Houthis from striking shipping. A huge percentage of global commerce goes through the Red Sea, right. and we're going to begin to see impacts if every ship that's going from Asia to Europe has to go around um, the very south of Africa. Certainly a cascading effect on the global economy. Sir, Senator Chris Coons, always appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. A prosecutor investigating Ecuador's surge in organized crime over the last month. That prosecutor shot and killed in broad daylight. We have a live report on the ground ahead. And the Princess of Wales hospitalized for the next two weeks as King Charles prepares to check into the hospital next week. The outpouring of concern for the royals. That's ahead. Prosecutor in Ecuador assassinated while leading an investigation into an attack on a local television network earlier this month. The focus of Prosecutor Cesar Suarez's work was on organized crime. 
As far as was investigating the storming of a local network, TC Television, by armed men while it was broadcasting live on January 9th, David Culver joins us from Ecuador with the latest. David, it was remarkable, very unsettling to watch happen live. What do we know about this prosecutor's assassination? And can, can you explain to people the broader context of what's happening right now? I'll tell you first, that, that takeover of the television station, Phil, it happened on live TV. You're right, it was remarkable, and that really woke up this country. And you could fair to say the rest of the world as to what was happening right now with this latest outbreak in violence. And it's something that, as you point out, now involves the prosecutor who is investigating that TV takeover. And we went, by the way, to that station just a couple of days ago to get a rare tour of what it looks like now. There are bullet holes riddling a lot of the infrastructure inside still. A lot of damage was done. The folks there are terrified. The prosecutor investigating that shot and killed yesterday on the way to a court hearing. Now, we know two people have just been arrested. We confirmed that in the past couple of hours. But the question remains, why didn't he have security? I mean, this is an incredibly sensitive topic to be investigating. This is a very dangerous place at this time with organized crime. And so we put that question to officials. The attorney general's office has said that there was security provided to this prosecutor, Cesar Suarez. The national police are supposed to provide that security. However, according to Suarez himself, the day before he was killed, he said, I don't have any security. So there's a lot of conflicting information, something that we're trying to clarify with national police, Phil and Poppy, but it speaks to the, the dysfunction right now and really the concern as to anyone connected to these cases, their lives may be at risk. That's right, David. And I think it's so looking at the broader context of what is happening in Ecuador right now. The president of Ecuador spoke with our Christiana Amanpour and talked about the problem in Ecuador being much larger, an international problem. Can you speak to that as well? I think this is really crucial. President Naboa telling Christian it's an international problem because of the drug flow. He cites some 35 to 40 percent of drugs that would leave from the organized crime units here in Ecuador would eventually make their way to the U.S. Outflow of drugs, sure, that's an issue. But, Papi, you've got to think about what you were just talking about with Caitlin in the last hour with Rosa, and that is the border. This was known as an island of peace. This country was very calm, was at ease amidst a lot of other turmoil in Latin America. What you happen, what you, what you see now is if this happens to continue to unfold, you've got folks here who, who happen to think, well, if it's not safe, at some point, I'm going to up and go. Where are they going to go, Poppy? They're going to go north. They're going to continue adding to the migrant influx. And you also have a place now where if you look at how spread thin the U.S. is with resources, this is a country that needs resources, yet another conflict zone added to the Middle East, to Ukraine, where the U.S. is being asked to step in. This goes to the point of you've got to address it also at the root, right, uh, and at the border. David, thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Donald Trump ramping up his attacks against Nikki Haley, claiming he is more electable than Haley and that Democrats actually want her to win Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. Is there any truth to that? I'm going to predict the answer here, but we're going to ask New Hampshire governor and Nikki Haley supporter Chris Sununu up next. Nikki Haley is counting on Democrats. The radical left Democrats are supporting Nikki Haley because they know she's much easier to beat than Trump. In Iowa, nearly 50% of Haley voters said they plan to vote for Biden in November. Now, that means that she's like a Democrat. I actually think she might go to the Democrat Party. That was Donald Trump last night, the former president really escalating his attacks on Nikki Haley as he seeks to deliver a blow, a knockout blow he wants in New Hampshire on the primary just five days away. Trump this week making clear 
that he views Haley as a serious threat. He did dial up his attacks on her on social media. He went after Haley while referring to her first name, Nimarada. Haley is the daughter of Indian immigrants. She was born Nimarada Nikki Rondhawa and her, took her husband's last name, Haley, when they got married. Trump also recently amplified a post that falsely claimed that Haley was ineligible to run for president because her parents were not U.S. citizens at the time of birth. Haley was born in South Carolina. She is a U.S. citizen. And this is a playbook we've seen from Trump time and time again, using racist dog whistles like referring to former President Obama by his full name, Barack Hussein Obama, promoting that baseless birther conspiracy theory. Haley responded last night to some of Trump's attacks. She pitched herself as the best alternative. Watch. Now, I know Trump threw a, a temper tantrum about me last night. We have to win in November. But if you look at these head-to-head matchups, that's a hard truth. Head-to-head, -head, Trump and Biden, it's going to be another nail-biter of an election. On a good day. With us now, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. He is set to do an event, as you see, with Nikki Haley in just a couple of minutes. What do you think Trump is doing here with those specific attacks that I laid out on Haley? Yeah, so... Yeah, so look, he's scared. There's no question about it. He wouldn't be giving, uh, paying Nikki any, any any mind if he didn't realize this was now a one-on-one -on -one race. He didn't think that was going to happen. Uh, she's challenging him actually to beat, potentially beat him here, which would be um, an amazing feat. Um, Nikki's already kind of exceeded expectations. Now it's just a matter of how, how close we can uh, bring the gap. And in the next few days, her numbers are going to keep rising. But what he's doing is riling up his base. He's afraid his base isn't going to come out for him. He's, so he, all, all he's doing there, it's, that's his uh, very bizarre way of, of getting out the vote, if you will, with his core voters. Um, I mean, obviously he knows, I mean, he's heaped praise on Nikki Haley for years as being so great and so tough and so wonderful. And now that she's finally saying, look, thank you for your service, Mr. President. We're moving on from you. Um, you know, he, he takes everything a, a little personally. He's he's a little sensitive, that guy. He's a little <laughs> sensitive. <laughs> Is he using Governor racist dog whistles to go after her? Is that what you're seeing now? Uh, look, he's going to keep he's going to keep trolling her. He's going to keep trolling anybody who supports no, but, Nikki but Governor, Haley. Governor, um, he's going to ignore DeSantis. Specifically, DeSantis is effectively out of the race. But. Specifically on what he's doing, because we've seen the playbook. I just laid it out. We saw it with Obama. We saw it with Elizabeth Warren. You're nodding your head. Yeah. Is that what he's doing to Nikki Haley now? Yeah, look, I, I, yes, I mean, it's just his playbook. It's his way of trolling. But those things are really just to rile his base up. He knows he's not going to convince anyone to come to his side with comments like that. He's just riling his base up because in, in Iowa alone, what do you get? F he did well, but 56,000 votes. That's it out of a state of 3 million, right? That's not a lot. Voter turnout was actually very low for him. So at the end of the day, as we drive voter turnout here, that all goes, those are new voters. That all goes to Nikki Haley. He's scared that his voters are going to be apathetic and stay at home. So that's what he's really doing is trying to rile up his base. So just a couple of days ago, um, Nikki Haley was asked about this country. And if it's a racist country, I want you to get your response to this exchange with her on Fox. Are you a racist party? Are you involved in a racist party? No. We're, we're not a racist country, Brian. We've never been a racist country. Our goal is to make sure that today is better than yesterday. Are we perfect? No. But our goal is to always make sure we try and be more perfect every day that we can. Is that the right answer to that question? 
Well, look, you, you have to acknowledge again, this is not a, this is not a racist country. You have to acknowledge there's racism and elements of racism. And, she and, said we've and, never um, been uh, a racist. bias all over this country. We've never. We, we, we just see the, the words. Again, it's all she's of, never. Yeah. She said it's never been a racist country. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think what she's doing is she's trying to say we have to find those elements of racism. We have to be vigilant on them. We have to put spotlights on them. We have to learn from them and we have to be better about it. And it's all about moving forward in the future. Um, I mean, I think her approach, she's a, the first female woman of color to be a, a governor in this country, a strong Tea Party conservative candidate in conservative South Carolina. So she carries great conservative credentials. Mm -hmm. Folks across the spectrum are, are kind of loving what she's bringing to the table. There's no doubt about it. But when you talk about the, the issue of racism, it's all about what are we tackling today? How do we learn from this today? And how do we make sure this country sure. is better for tomorrow? She appreciates for, that more than anybody. For sure. But history informs, accurate history informs how we address the issues that we face today. And the, the point you make is an important one. And I bring it up because this, there's a broader context here. I mean, it was just, you know, a couple of weeks ago that she didn't say slavery in an answer to what caused the Civil War. So my question to you, Governor, is I think it's confounding to some voters why she didn't say that, why those answers were both the way they were. What do you say yeah. to voters who are skeptical? Yeah. Uh, well, look, it's not affecting the voters. She acknowledged, you know, when it comes to the, the, the question she took a couple weeks ago, she said, well, of course slavery was at the crux of it. That's obvious to everybody. I mean, she acknowledged that right away. So, again, I, I know the media likes to make try to make she use this word and that phrase and all this. At the end of the day, her numbers just go up. It doesn't affect the vote. Voters are worried about inflation. Voters are worried about the cost of their fuel. Voters are worried about how they're going to make sure they can pay their bills and not have massive credit card debt. That's driving the vote to move this country forward. That's why Joe Biden is actually in trouble. I mean, six months ago, I, I told you directly, I don't think Trump can win this thing at all. Joe Biden would beat so, him. In the last six months, it's actually, Biden is this bad, this uh -huh. bad, that Trump may even have a chance. But this is the most important thing for Republicans. Nikki wins by 10. Nikki carries a full ticket. Nikki wins Senate seats and governor seats and all these other things up and down the ticket. So her electability so far exceeds anybody else's. Uh, Trump is the weakest candidate. Nikki has strength. So, it's a one-on-one -on -one race and Trump is scared. So, so Governor, okay, just put a button on that. Words do matter. Inflation matters. All these things matter. Words matter too. Finally, though, you told Caitlin, our friend Caitlin Collins, a couple days ago that you would vote for Trump if he's a nominee, even if he's convicted. How does that not hurt your, the candidate you're arm in arm with right now, Nikki Haley, no. saying that? Yeah. So look, that, that's a that's a hypothetical. That is not going to happen. My point, I, may, I was trying to make a point in saying that. You don't that, know that that's that if not going to happen. For an external factor, to, that's not going to happen. It, that's a complete hypothetical. These cases are going on for years, Poppy. If you're waiting, my point is is a very important one. If you're waiting for a court case or something to defeat Donald Trump. You can't do it. You got to come out and vote. He gets defeated at the ballot box. That's democracy. We want everyone to engage in the process the right way. That's how Trump gets defeated. He's never beaten by these external things. And I just see so many people saying, well, this this court case will will make him go away. And then he can't. Don't wait for that kind of nonsense. It's, it's very hypothetical. You got to get out and vote. You got to be part of that democratic process here in South Carolina, wherever it is. And if the more people that come and vote, the, the more likely it is that we can defeat Donald Trump and put somebody that galvanizes this country together. That's a very, very important point. You got a packed house behind you. I'll let you go, Governor Sununu. Always appreciate the exchange. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Be sure to watch Nikki Haley one-on-one -on -one with our Jake Tapper tonight, answering voter questions at Town Hall in New Hampshire, right here at 9 p.m. Eastern.
Well, the Supreme Court agreeing to take a look at a case that could potentially wipe away felony convictions for dozens of January 6th rioters. It could significantly impact Jack Smith's case against Trump. We'll tell you more next. So this just in, Donald Trump just posted on his Truth Social account that all presidents should have full immunity. He argues that, quote, even events across the line must fall under total immunity or it will be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. After what his lawyer said in court, that's Trump a big deal. Trump is making this argument. He truthed it as he asked the federal appeals court to use presidential immunity to shield him from some charges in his federal election subversion case. And dozens of January 6th rioters are asking judges to halt their upcoming trials after the Supreme Court agreed to hear a challenge to how the Justice Department prosecutes them. The case raises the question of whether the rioters committed a felony by obstructing a federal proceeding. The Supreme Court's ruling will likely have the greatest impact on defendants who weren't violent during the riot and for former President Trump. CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us now. To that point, uh, what is the argument that is actually being made here to have the cases thrown out for these rioters? Well, these rioters are going to the Supreme Court now and they're going to have oral arguments on this to say that this law has not been used correctly by the Justice Department. It's a felony charge of obstruction that there wasn't a clean fit for how to charge these January 6 rioters. So instead of charging them with misdemeanors, people who were nonviolent but did serious things inside the Capitol, people like Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman with the spear, uh, people like Kevin Seafried, this drywaller from Delaware who carried the Confederate flag inside the Capitol. They were charged with these felony counts of obstruction. And they're saying that law shouldn't apply to what happened on January 6th, that it's not the type of proceeding. It's not a trial. It's not something with evidence where you can use this sort of charge. And so not just those people, but lots of defendants are now very hopeful that the Supreme Court will overturn the Justice Department's ability to use this law in these cases. And dozens have asked to delay their sentencing. Some have been successful. Uh, there's one person person who's going to be let out of jail early and may have to go back to jail if the Supreme Court upholds the law. And if the Supreme Court goes in the way that the rioters are, are um, petitioning it to go, this could affect Jack Smith's, the special counsel's work. Very much so. So Donald Trump, in his case related to January 6th, the 2020 election, he faces four charges. Two of them are based around this this charge, this obstruction charge that the Supreme Court is looking at, a conspiracy and an obstruction. And Trump's team, according to my sources, are seeing an opening here that when this case goes back to the trial judge, they can challenge the fact that he is charged on these two sort of these two things. Now, Jack Smith has already tried to get ahead of this and in court papers has written Trump's different than those rioters because those fake election certificates that were sent to Congress makes it a little different for obstruction. But it's going to be a really big question, a lot to watch here with the Supreme Court. No question at all. Kevin Polans, thank you, as always. Thanks. While the Princess of Wales recovers from surgery, King Charles is actually getting ready for his own hospital stay. We do have an update on the British royals next. So we do have new pictures of Prince William leaving the hospital after visiting his wife, the Princess of Wales. She has been recovering from her abdominal surgery. She was last seen in public at church on Christmas Day with the prince and their children. King Charles is also set to be hospitalized next week for an enlarged prostate, and Max Foster is following all of it from London. Obviously, the confluence of these things all at once has a lot of people paying a lot of attention. 
Uh, yeah, so obviously Charles is older. We also heard from Camilla today, uh, the Queen, who is now the only member of the top four in the royal family and now out and about representing the monarchy. So it's a big sort of moment for her as well in terms of public attention. Uh, she said Charles was fine. So people are feeling quite confident about Charles. He's got this procedure next week he has to go through. Uh, but the, um, uh, you know, the, the condition he's got is benign. So that people aren't concerned that he'll be out of the picture for too long. Um, the story about Kate that we talked about yesterday was interesting because initially people were interested and then they got more concerned as they learned that she's got this very long recuperation period, up to more than three months potentially. Uh, so some concern as to why that is, we're not getting the detail. But all the tabloids I have to say, being quite well behaved on this, they're not speculating at all. Uh, here we got one of them, uh, The Mirror, talking about Prince William, who is actually taken time off work as well in order to support his family. We're not going to be seeing much of him. We just saw him obviously visiting um, the hospital there. Uh, Daily Mail saying, let's pray that they're both okay. This is the, the sense of shock I was talking about. Uh, Kate, such a vi vibrant, youthful figure. No one ever thought that she would end up in a hospital for, you know, the only other time she's been in hospital, as far as we're aware, was when she had the kids. And the son talking about the, the royals rocked by Kate Opp. Uh, the Queen having to step up, represent the family. She will also have the support of Edward and Anne and Sophie as well, but they don't have the heft of the top four. So I think quite a lot of pressure on Camilla right now to represent the family and represent continuity, which yeah. is what the monarchy is all about. No, absolutely. And we know you'll keep us posted on this. Max Foster, thank you as always. That's it for us this morning. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.